I'm Elizabeth Vincentilli. I write for The New York Times and The New Yorker. I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. Here we are in the lusty month of May and episode 32 of Three on the Isle, a twice-monthly podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. This and other podcasts are hosted by American Theater and brought to you by Charcoal Blue. So we and our staff here at Three on the Isle strive to provide you with the most scintillating conversations on the podcast dial. In that spirit, our guest today is the lovely, the talented David Yazbek, a Tony winner last season for his score of The Band's Visit, and a Tony nominee again this year for the musical version of Tootsie, nominated for a total of 11 Tonys. We'll end, as we always do, with accounts of all of our personal theater journeys since our last podcast, as well as some ideas of shows you might want to see. Or not. Or not. But first, let's turn to today's distinguished guest. Peter, will you make the introduction? Oh, it'd be my pleasure. Uh, the versatile and Tony-nominated David Yazbek is here with us. And if you were a patron over the last two years of either the Atlantic Theater Company on West 20th Street or the Walter Kerr Theater on Broadway, uh, you're certainly intimately uh, familiar with David's mo one of David's most recent accomplishments, his score for the band's visit which won last year's Tony Award for Best Music Awards. At the Ethel Barrymore Theater. Oh, God. <laughs> but, but actually, who cares? Right, it's it's yeah. gone now. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, go exactly. ahead. Go to the same, Walter Kerr Theater. Deal. I don't care. What's at the Walter Kerr? Hadestown? Oh, oh yes, God. That's, that's Never right. mind. Uh -oh. Right. oh, that's its, its own conversation. So anyway, yeah, thank you for correcting me. It, 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 anyway, <laughs> the score for the band's visit was an ingenious intermingling of the meditative sounds of the Middle East and the Broadway show tunes in songs like the, the aromatic Omar Sharif. Aromatic, <laughs> I don't know where you got that from. I don't know, I gotta find new adjectives for Christ's sakes. Before Tootsie, his musical comedy scores included those for the full Monty, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, among whose stars was one Laura Benanti. Who was featured on our most popular episode to date. So we're going to see if David can beat Laura tonight. He doubt we're it. Gonna, we're going to do I the really doubt it. Uh, welcome, David. And don't say beat Laura because I'll, I'll be sued <laughs> by Laura. Well, and also, I like aromatic, but I prefer odoriferous <laughs> when uh, when applied to my soul. Now, music. that's a I, critic word. Yeah, <laughs> odoriferous. Yeah, that's a good one. Yes. Well, are oh. we a happy camper now that we have another hit show? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. We're a relieved camper. This camper doesn't usually get particularly happy, but this camper gets relieved. So it's like having a stomach ache for years, and then it goes away, and you're like, oh, oh, this is nice. Do you, well, do you have continuing responsibilities with Tootsie now that it's open? Yeah, I do. Mm. I mean, the, the show is obviously locked at this point, um, and we worked on it till right up. I mean, we were pretty good even weeks before we, we locked. But uh, Robert Horn and I worked on it right up until we were told we had to stop. Uh, just we were just in that mode, mm -hmm. you know, just keep keep fixing, keep fixing, keep fixing. Now we're in that sort of horrible marketing mode um, oh. where. I mean, it's not horrible, but it's kind of, it's so nice to be nominated for awards. It's very nice to win them, mm -hmm. both for your ego, but also for the business of the show, um, which is what where mine, mine goes right after we've opened. Of course. Um, and uh, uh, so so the, the problem solving turns into sort of, 
problem solving around marketing and which songs should we put out there and those kind of you know boring but stressful questions well I want to ask you let's get started about one of those songs it's a musical comedy and the songs are funny too including one of the best comic numbers I've ever heard in a Broadway musical which is the one that Sarah Stiles sings what's gonna happen what's gonna happen and what I want to ask you is what is the process by which a number that is intended to be funny and stop the show gets written. How do you decide what it's going to be, where it goes? Just walk us through how that number came to be, if you would. That particular number, I mean, first of all, talking about crafting a truly funny song or a truly funny scene is the most boring thing in the world. <laughs> like, it's not funny, but I, I'll try to make it not boring. I Actually, mean, can I interject? Like, I think we should set up the, explain right. yeah, yeah, yeah. what the song is. is. Sarah if you do the Stiles plays sure, I'm happy Sandy to. Lister, who's uh, Michael Dorsey's previous mm-hmm. girlfriend and and sort still... of his and and he helps her out. She's a right. she's a struggling actress. She's not particularly very good. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sarah Stiles is great, but <laughs> oh, Sandy boy. Sandy right. is not particularly good. And um, and uh, she's very insecure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she has she has a, a role. She has an audition, and she's very excited. Um, it turns out she's auditioning for the role that actually Michael Dorsey ends up getting as when he changes into Dorothy Michaels. Um, So she's excited and she's nervous and she's also uh, very negative about her chances. Um, And uh, she sings this song where uh, it's called What's Gonna Happen and the first line is I know what's gonna happen and then it's just a complete uh, car wreck. What she's imagining will happen. So, you know, it's a song that you know you have this character who's a nervous wreck. She's an actress. So I've, I've met many actors and actresses who are also nervous wrecks and who are uh, completely cut off at the knees, no matter how good they are, by ins- this kind of insecurity. And it was kind of all I had to really come up with was the ostinato and the groove. And it's a song that was a lot of fun to write, actually. Um, often a comedy song is not fun to write. Right. Um, because it's just so hard. It's just, I mean, this Tootsie was the hardest show I've ever been involved with. Hmm. And Robert and I, just a lot of it was just like digging coal, and yet we were laughing the whole time. So it was kind of this interesting, we were exhausted, but and we were problem solving constantly, and we were also laughing at each other. I mean, he's, he's a great joke writer and a great writer, um, and I come out of being a gag writer, so we're just constantly joking with each other. Um, so that song also came out of us talking about the character. Um, yeah, and joking turn, about turn it back just a little bit sure. further. At some point, you said, "Okay, Sarah's got to have a song. Where's it going to go? What's it going to be about?" How did that decision get made? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think I wrote the song before I knew where it was going to go. Okay. Um, but it was pretty clear. I would never have guessed that. Yeah, no. It, I'm trying to think of another example from one of my shows where I wrote the song. I think Big Black Man from Full Monty. Mm-hmm. I knew that there was this, that there was going to be the audition and this character horse was going to sing it. And it just sort of like, oh, I know what it's going to be. It's like a James Brown number. Um, mm-hmm. Every show has one or two of those. Even before you've talked to the book writer, you kind of can write the song based on if you're 
adapting from something based on the movie that you've seen or the book or whatever it is. Um, was Sarah Cast when you wrote it? No, she wasn't. Even more interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, when she came in, it, it was so clear when she, first she auditioned for us, and then she sang the song. And by the time she was done singing the song, it was just clear that sometimes there's a actor and a song that are made for each other, and Sarah Stiles is made for that song and vice versa. Have you ever written for an actor a song or is it always for a character? Uh, no, I mean later in the process when you have your actors, mm -hmm. um, that that will happen sometimes. I mean, I, I knew that I was writing for Lily Cooper who has a very distinctive and to me a powerful and pleasing voice mm. when I wrote um, both of the songs that she sings, the both of her, she sings three and a half, four, so, you know, she sings pieces of songs and then she has mm -hmm. two big numbers herself. And uh, both of those numbers I wrote after I knew she was going to sing them. And it helped me write them because I just, I knew that I was in good hands mm. as a writer. When I wrote an opera libretto for Paul Moravec, we, we talked to the star, Patricia Reset, and we said, under pain of death, we'll never tell anybody this. What do you do best? What do you like to do best vocally? And what do you do worst? What would you like us to avoid? And she opened the bag and told us exactly. You know, we said, we'll give you a lot of the first and none of the second. Well, I love that because sometimes the, when you're writing, what you need, especially early on, what you need is a palette. And that gives you your palette, right? That gives you some version of your palette right there. Um, and then you've written it. And then it's a good piece. And other people can can do mm -hmm. it. But why not write, especially with an opera, if you know going in that you have a particular star, why not do that, you know? But actually, you you, you were talking about working very closely with, with Robert Horn, who did the book for the show. Uh, how closely do you work in general with the book writers? Uh, and how when do you guys get together in terms of the back and forth? Well, I the last, almost all of my shows, I've worked extremely closely. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Women on the Verge I wrote with Jeffrey Lane and you know he's one of my best friends we spend a lot of time together and we we work very closely on every aspect of that show starting with the dramaturgy of the structure of it mm -hmm. and and um and the the tone of it and the concept of adapting um on both of those shows uh then with um Itamar Moses you know, it, it, it on was, Band's visit. On Band's visit, it was a weird collaboration. We we really like each other, and we hung out and had a good time. Um, I felt like both because the movie presented the story so clearly and the tone, and because um, Itamar mm. just had just was on he just was on board, and I was on board with what he was doing immediately. We didn't have to have as deep and constant conversation about every aspect of the show. Mm -hmm. um, and when, interestingly, we had written almost all the show when David Cromer came in, and when Cromer came in, the conversations became sort of Cromerized. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know when you have like a genius come into the room, you know, you all, you all start servicing his his uh, he's he was servicing us like a director should mm. and we were servicing his incredible grasp of what the tone should be of the of the show of the mm. theater piece mm. he's the only um, director i've ever called a genius in a, you in know, a headline well he's a bona fide genius yeah. because he also they gave him however many 
hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> for the MacArthur <laughs> right. the MacArthur grant. Right. Anointed. Um, he's anointed. He's also he's also I got to just, you know, I have to say this, he is one of the funniest people that I know. I mean, he can make me laugh so hard. That says a lot. It's it's great. And he and I have like these little routines we do and um uh, I'm looking forward. We're, we're doing the tour for the band's visit. Uh, it starts in June, and I'm looking forward to spending time with him doing that. Well, in in um, Tootsie, who came first? I mean, was it you and Robert at the same the time? I was a little before Robert. You know, I was working on it a little bit. Um, and uh, I'll tell you this. When Robert came on, Scott Sanders, the producer, kind of discovered him. Um, he had done a, uh, a reading of this kind of country western kind of musical and it's sort of legendary it, it fell apart it was very poorly produced and it just fell apart um, not because it wasn't a great show it really was um, I've heard tapes and I've seen seen uh, videos of of the show Scott Sanders saw this legendary reading <laughs> what was the show and it was called moonshine and uh, he said uh, and at the time, it was known as the Hee Haw musical, because that was the idea <laughs> oh, around it. Oh, my God. Oh. And I said... I remember that. And he came in and he said, listen, you're going you're gonna to say, get out of here, but it's, it's, this guy is the funniest, funniest writer. And I was like, yeah, get out of here. I'm <laughs> I don't want to talk to the guy who wrote right. the Hee Haw. And, and then, I, then I, I read uh, some of the script from it, and I said, oh, maybe we should talk to this guy. And then it was just a, just a match, like a match wow. made in heaven. Hmm. He's got... He and I have very, we diverge a little bit in our senses of humor. Uh, he enjoys sort of puns more than I do, but he also enjoys sort of oblique, kind of off the wall, you know, non sequiturs and stuff. Mm -hmm. He's he is he is tremendously funny um, to be with. But I mean, the book to Tootsie just kept getting funnier and funnier, and it just got to the point and I'm not just plugging I'm like Siri I'm serious I, I mean it got to the point where I was like we, we have to take out some laughs because <laughs> you gotta have you have to have breathing room you know right. literally right. I mean it's right. structurally you have to right you know? uh, honestly I was I, I wouldn't say I was dreading it because I am such a big fan of yours that I can't dread a show. Oh, that's very nice. On. Thank you. But but I thought, oh God, Tootsie, because I tried to watch it before the show was announced, like a few years ago. I, it was on, and I started watching it. And I could not get through it. And I remember at the time it came out, I loved it, and I thought, oh, it must, you know, I'm going to watch it again. I love that movie. Oh, and so you, you think it hasn't aged well, basically? No, I think it has aged terribly. Yeah. And but what you guys did is like a textbook example of how to make an adaptation that is faithful to, I would say, the theme and the characters of the movie. But solving a lot of the issues that are lingering with it. And, well, some may say you can't solve them, quote unquote, without transforming the movie too much. But I don't think that that happens, actually. No, I, and that's, um, the, that's the ultimate. Other than it's the fucking funniest show I've ever seen, <laughs> what you just said is the, that's the ultimate compliment for me and for Robert. Because when we got together, we knew, because I agree, I mean, some people iconic size the original oh, you know yeah, no. and it's i think it's much admired among comedy people it's one oh of my favorite God. movies really but have you seen it recently yes i still oh God, i have, a, still I, I have a lingering affection I for that movie maybe it. there was some nostalgia in that i don't know i mean sure. I, have, I i i'm friends with you know a lot of my friends are like you know comedy writers that's what they do mm -hmm. like tv comedy writers and a lot of them said Oh no 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 no! Don't don't screw that up, you know. And I was like, wow, I you know I've always liked the movie, but I I also felt that there were certain aspects of, the, you know, their 
angle on feminism and and certain ways that they use the humor um, and certain sort of misdirection in terms of where characters went and stuff. I, I, I felt like maybe there are things that we could bring, not just bring up to date, so, so when, to speak. When did you guys, I think one of the biggest changes is to get rid of the character of, of the dad. Yeah, that the was... The Charles character in the movie yeah. is not in the show at all. It's yeah, like, Robert, when did you decide to do that? Robert, That's a big I assume that was a running time issue. Oh no no no! Oh, that really was, not. Well, it's... well, everything for Tootsie, everything ended up being a running time <laughs> issue. But that, but that issue happened before all the other running time issues. Um, we we looked at each other and we and you know we said, what can we consolidate? And we're gonna have to cut something, not just because of running time, but just because of story real estate. Something's gonna have to go, or something else will have. Yeah, to Yeah, that's stay. kind of what I meant, meant when mm. I said that. I mean, yeah, because you could there's choose just to, too much stuff. You could make the big mistake and have a three and a half hour show, you know, <laughs> because right. because you can't cut a character. Robert comes out of television, uh, as do I, and you know he's good at cutting. He he can kill his darlings, you know, and certainly mm -hmm. there's twelve or thirteen songs that are just, you know. In, in my little trunk slash oh coffin. My God. In my, uh, oh, I mean, yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm curious, David. You've uh, you've done these five musicals, all based on movies. Yeah. Is that is that coincidence? I mean, what is it that you love these films and wanted to adapt them? Or what's <laughs> the what's the what's the through story here? Well, I would say other. Than, I say I would say I like all the films. I love the band's visit, and I pretty much love Women on the Verge. But I sort of love his uh, Pedro Almodovar's entire body of work. Oeuvre. Uh, <laughs> so pretentious. Closer to the mic to say so that. So pretentious. That's a critic word too. Although you roll his bass pot up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> None of you guys. Do you would like use the mise en scène too? <laughs> yes. yes. The Alan. The um, so. Uh, well, come on, you 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 have a Fado joke in one of your songs. Yeah, there's Fado in there. There's, uh, but there's Cypress also Cypress Hill. That's one of my favorite things. There's a Cypress Hill reference. <laughs> Fado you and know, Cypress Hill. That's totally I, uh, awesome. I have a wide frame of reference, and the stuff I listen to in the car is probably not what it. it when I go to my Sirius satellite radio, it very seldom lands on uh, Broadway Channel. Where, where, <laughs> you know. where does it land? I'm curious now. Oh well, it lands on real jazz a lot. Uh -huh. um, it lands on the uh, soul thing. I have uh, what is it called? The groove, which oh, is oh, which yeah. is kind of the kind of funk I don't like. But every now and then, there's a kind of funk I do like. Mm -hmm. um, and then you know, uh, then it's off off to the the iPhone and to um, you know everything from the Ramones to Captain Beefheart to. But uh, with these, so with the with the movie, the, uh, the oh, idea, I haven't answered the, your question. Well, the answer I quit. Are they brought to you, <laughs> yeah. or do you, or does it start? You know, do you want to adapt these, or or is there a producer saying this you know, one? You know, so much, so much that's out there has been made into a movie. You know, right. um, Full Monty. They came to me. It was my. I mean, I don't know why they came to me, but good for me. <laughs> <laughs> probably good for them. Right. Um, you know, I'd never done a show before, and then. Women um, scoundrels was I was I was I I had wanted to do Car Wash as a musical. Oh my god! Because I wanted god. to work in this funk idiom, you know, and oh, like funk and like interesting. It's like oh everybody listening yeah. out there. Yeah. 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 someday I'll do a musical of that genre, even if it isn't Car Wash. I I couldn't get the rights. Um, hmm. It's a long story, but anyway, that was that. As long uh, as you're uh, thinking this way, think about Barbershop. But that's. 
that's not a bad idea barbershop but i i was how also much is tricky though because like some of the songs are already so identified with the movie like how do you get around that i would maybe keep one okay anyway <laughs> uh, they wouldn't let me uh do that um maybe they would maybe they will now i don't know someone bought the rights at some point um so i was watching television and there was dirty Rotten scoundrels and i thought oh i can do i can sort of pay tribute to Cole Porter and to like the lyricists that I love and I can also do just you know sort of mm. tenacious D you know like <laughs> filthy crap crappy Got so it. so it could go high and low right, right. and I thought oh that'll be fun and off on the west coast uh, who Jeffrey Lane who lived in LA at the time was thinking exactly the same thing hmm. we both called our agents at almost the same time and we sort of met in the middle um, and then, you know, Women on the Verge, he, Jeffrey said, let's do that. Mm. And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I just, I just watched all of Pedro's stuff again. And I thought, oh yeah, uh, let's try it. Well, and that, so let's pause here for a moment. That so. is an extraordinarily wide range of musical reference that has come up in the last 30 seconds of this And we haven't gone to the Arabic stuff. That's yeah, right. right. <laughs> wider, than, wider than that of any other uh, uh, composer of, I guess, what used to be called show tunes that I can think of. That's, well, I mean, where do you start out as a musician? What's your training? I mean, where do you come from musically? Well, I'm not a composer of show tunes. I'm a, I'm a songwriter right. who also understands theater because I'm also a writer. Uh, but really, I'm a musician. And my my from a very early age, it has to do with just intense hunger and curiosity for different sounds and different kinds of music. So in just in, my, in the first, you know, even before college, I'd already gotten so into the Buchla synthesizer that I learned how to play it. Like the, one of the early, You're you know, so old. yeah, we're pretty old. <laughs> In college, I got to use an ARP 2500 and oh I got God. to use, you know, a lot of other synthesizers. But before that, but, you know, when I was, this is my father reminded me of this recently. When I was like eight years old or nine years old, I went out into Central Park uh, on Easter Sunday by myself carrying a little <laughs> toy bongo drum that I had been given for a souvenir. And uh, thinking, because I had seen these guys, you know, these good kunga players, like, you know, sit in clusters, like of three or four, and play these incredible, basically Afro-Cuban rhythms that I couldn't understand but needed to play. And I remember going out there with my drum and thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play. And then, you know, just being very embarrassed and listening. <laughs> but, but that was the kind of curiosity that I have, and I still have it. You know, I used to go to the Lincoln Center Library and just listen to vinyl because you, mm. you didn't have the mm. computer yeah. all day on a, on a Saturday, you know. Um, so my mother always used to say, have a wide frame of reference. And um, that, Your mother said that? My mother said wow. it. I don't, I don't know if she knew that that's what I was doing, but, you know. <laughs> so, so, and by the time I was out of college, I had taken, you know, West African drumming classes and I had taken some... Um, um, you know, Balinese gamelan stuff, and you know, just all this music so of are Mexico. You a percussionist? No, I'm a I'm a wannabe percussionist. Okay. I any and any percussionist in any of my shows will tell you <laughs> that when when I knock on the door to the percussion room, like uh, uh, you know, below the stage, you know, you gotta you gotta watch out. They run. They run. I'll be hitting that conga as hard as I possibly can. I have notes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I'm. A, like every other musician, I'm, I wish I was a drummer, <laughs> basically. God, that's the um, truth. So that's, so that's the answer to the question is just like, you know, how do you stay interested? And, you know, um, 
how do you uh, how do you keep it fresh? And also, how do you avoid doing the same old shit right. that you just right. and you know that's my thing right. is like. You know, if I go to a jazz club and I just hear someone with their jazz head up their jazz ass, I'm like, I don't, you know, I'm like, why didn't, why have, why can't you do anything new? And it's the same thing if I go to the, go to the theater. If I see something that's adapted from a movie that's just the movie put on stage with show tunes, mm. I'm gonna sit there scowling and be upset that I spent 180 something dollars, you know, and I don't want anyone to, to, I don't want people to come to my shows and s spend that much money and feel like they've been cheated. That's what I call you know. a commodity music. Um, well, the the actually, miracle of the band's visit the, can, can is we, it's the opposite of that. And we knew it going in. We also, that's why we knew it wouldn't succeed. <laughs> but I'm glad it did. <laughs> can, can we go back to Women on the Verge for a second? Yeah. Because that was an interesting case. Um, that I think Laura Benanti, when she was here, I talked about it a bit as to, she said, oh, the critics should have come at the end of the run because we totally the had The critics it. could have come two weeks after we opened. I mean, right. the problem um, was we didn't have time. Uh, and it, part of it was our fault, my, Jeffrey Lane and mine, because we're, at the time, I didn't like traveling and he doesn't like traveling. And we were kind of like, we don't have to go out of town. We'll just do a lot of workshops. <laughs> so that was like our neuroses. Mm. But it, also part of it was the problem of the people producing it who were kind of like, oh, yeah, let's, Let's not go out of town because, you know, this sort of feeling of like saving money and it was really off base because we should have gone out of town because we would have come in with a great, great show. What we came in with was a, a script that needed a more like a couple of more weeks of just work, not not because the script wasn't great, just because you need X number of days of scene work to get it there. Mm -hmm. And a score, which was, you know, when we made the cast album, sort of all was forgiven because everyone loved that cast album mm -hmm. uh, because they heard the score without this overstaged, overwrought production. We all knew it. Bart knew it too. Bart Cher, the director, knew it. So when we were asked to do it in London, we did it right. And that Sometimes was the, right. The I wanted to ask you about the London. The yes, the cast album in this case was very helpful in in, uh, in getting us another production. I'd like to bring that London production right. somehow to BAM or somewhere in New York because, mm. you know, we... Jeffrey Lane and I, after that show flopped, um, got together and we said, we can't let, when it goes to licensing, we have to give give them the best show we can. So oh. we spent a month that summer, six weeks that summer, just working on the show, just the two of us. Hmm. Then when we were asked to come to London, um, we got together uh, with Bart, the three of us, and just said, here's what we're cutting, here's what we're changing. And that's what we brought to London. So did Bart Share also direct it in London? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, because I thought it was someone different. Because I heard that that version was really good, and I thought, oh my god, like I wish we, we saved were able it. To we just reconceived what it should be. It's not this giant behemoth, you know, at the mm -hmm. Belasco, um, and we went into you know not a tiny theater, but like eight or nine hundred seat theater, and and had a just a set that helped the movement happen and and. We pared it down. It's all the stuff we would have done out of town. Mm -hmm. And we were way out of town. <laughs> you know, Broadway <laughs> was out of town for us. And London, where no one ever makes any money, was our Broadway. So. I've been thinking that the future of the really creative musical is in small-scale production more and more. The Band's Visit is one of the shows that made me feel that very strongly. Well, you know, we went into the Band's Visit, and I remember talking to Itamar and saying, if we try to write this show for Broadway, we're gonna fail. Like, mm. I guarantee you we'll fail. If we try to write it for the Atlantic, which is a 299, 
you know, and it's a nice size stage, but there's no wing space or anything. If we write it for the Atlantic, I think we'll have a chance to actually go to Broadway because we'll write the right show. Mm. Um, oh, now that's interesting. You were really thinking that way. Totally. That was one of the that first it, conversations. It has we had. its own integrity in the small scale. It's a all. Chance for it's for every show. It's about the integrity of the show. I mean, it's you have to serve the show. You have to serve the tone of the show, and you have to be focused on the integrity of the show. If anything's inauthentic, even if it's a giant comedy, you know, even if mm. it's a big 19-piece orchestra, large-scale comedy with a mm -hmm. big cast and an audience that's just, you know, like blowing the roof off, you can't, if, you, if the audience laughs and you realize that it, they're laughing at a joke that's kind of unearned, mm. if, like a real Broadway button joke, you know, mm. and which I can't stand. It's like okay, when everyone. Can, can you explain what well, you mean well, by that? Well, the dance equivalent is when everyone in a, on a on a Broadway stage does a little chorus kick. Oh yeah. And the audience starts applauding, and I'm looking around like, why the fuck are you applauding? Right, right, I mean, right. Why, that right. What is that's that? That's not choreography. Right. So there's like these little buttons or these yeah. like inside baseball things or reflex. You know, it's if a I'm reflex. in a show and and I'm looking around and wondering why people are laughing, I feel like I'm in a foreign country and I'm very uncomfortable. <laughs> well, one yeah. of the things that was so unique about Band's Visit was, you know, the score existed as a character um, of the show. It didn't feel like it was always necessarily just defining characters. It seemed to exist, it seemed to have its own voice and it was your voice filtered through this incredible um, sound that kept coming at me in different ways. But even lyrically, it had its own sort of language, the uh, the language of Band's Visit, unlike many other um, musicals, which probably made it hard to find songs that sold the show, in a sense. Oh, Because definitely. they were so woven into the the, the feeling oh, we, that you were creating. We had to we had to fight with CBS to put the best song on the Tonys last year, which was Omar Sharif. Right. Sung, uh, talk about a, a match between a singer and a song, you know, sung by Katrina Lenk. Um, so clearly to me, that was like, oh, you got, that's what you put on. Mm -hmm. Why does everything really? have to be like, have to have explosions? You know, let's, let's, let's do that. Um, but, you know, the, that was, to me, writing that show was as personal as writing one of my albums, like mm. writing songs for me to sing myself. Um, and that's why I think you heard me coming through it. It was sort of a nostalgic kind of journey to a certain kind of music that I've always loved. Mm. But it was also the issues in the issues. That makes it sound yeah, <laughs> like yeah, a yeah, polemic. Right. Um, but the, the problematic issues. The, <laughs> the matters that are you know discussed, the spiritual spiritual stuff. The idea of what is what is love, what's mm. connection, mm. what is God, mm. you know, that's that's what I write about when I write for myself. So I was writing for myself because these characters, and Ron Colrin, who wrote the movie, and Itamar, we were all thinking about the, those things, um, which is another reason why it was kind of a different. It was a more subdued. Uh, uh, Process, yeah. Well, but that's and that's also it's so interesting that um, that you can find yourself in these pieces that you can actually express something of Yazbek. It's not. I mean, in the way I think that you know Sondheim does that with all in all kinds of ways too. But that you can find your way through these stories that really have nothing to do with your own life. I, it's especially interesting to hear you say that because the I I and I believe probably almost everyone who writes anything does their best work when they're not thinking about themselves mm. you know so maybe you can only really express yourself when you're not 
thinking when you're not seeing yourself as though you're the camera lens you know when you're not uh, getting in your own way by thinking, oh, I'm a composer and now I have to write this song and no, we can't cut that song because that's one of my best songs, you know. Um, same with scenes, same with jokes, characters. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe you can only express yourself when you're not considering what your persona, mm. you know. Yeah, this, that show to me was like an organism where I, I felt, you know, I, I think Cromer, you, Itamar, uh, the actors who, who uh, became sort of like so uh, 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 integrated into the, the mood of that piece, they, you felt like one complete thought. Yeah. And that often feels the opposite of what happens with musicals that are pastiche, or they're you know they're they're they're, they're they go off in all directions. They're parasitic. They're trying to tell you how many forms they're they're trying to replicate. Oh, well, that, the, yeah. There's that. I mean, talk about having your head up your ass. You know, with with the band's <laughs> visit, you know, Cromer comes in and he says said very early in the process uh, said to me, uh, you know, I've learned how to not how to not think I'm always the smartest person in the room mm. and and you know which is ironic because he is the smartest person <laughs> in the room. but that's usually the person uh, who says that <laughs> but you know itamar came in not you know like a humble he wasn't like i gotta make my mark on musical you know he came in saying boy that's a that's a beautiful movie and these mm. characters are beautiful let's let's make something and one good. by one it, everyone lined up mm. to because do that. the source material is itself so powerful yeah i know yeah. when i saw that show I saw it at a difficult moment in life, and it was certainly a difficult moment in the world. Mm. And I was completely overwhelmed by it. It never occurred to me that it could get to Broadway because it seemed so completely in accord with the physical space that it was organically a small show. And it just seemed to me a miracle that it was able to move into a larger house. I, I knew, I'll tell you when I knew it was going to go to Broadway, and it was almost like a, a 180. <laughs> you know, like I'm sitting there, we're, we're not going to go to Broadway, but we've really done something nice. And then there was this moment, um, and I've talked about this before, when I had just been complaining to Cromer about some of the pauses. And I was like, some of these pauses are great, but, and I was talking about one particular. <sighs> taking a long time to make three cups of coffee. And I was like, but that's a bullshit pause, I said. And he looks at me like I'm crazy. He goes, a bullshit pause? Like, what does that <laughs> mean? Right, what is that? And I'm like, I don't know, man, but I, you gotta, you got to tighten up that pause. And he just sort of looks at me like I'm crazy. And then, you know, I, he probably mumbled something like, oh, okay, we can try that. Yeah. But that night, before he had a chance to try anything, I'm sitting in the audience for mm. the first time in a week or two because I don't like to sit especially in a place that doesn't have a center aisle, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but I'm sitting there cause you have to sometimes and I'm watching that scene. Uh, there's, it's not a song or anything. I'm watching that scene and I'm watching her make these cups of coffee and I literally see almost everyone in my row lean forward. Like, you know, it's a cliche oh, now, but I see like everyone leans forward like two inches. And I remember that saying, and that was maybe a week or two before we opened, I remember saying oh. uh, saying to Itamar, I, I think we're going to end up going to Broadway. Wow, wow. because because it interesting. You know, when you're when you're doing a comedy and you have people laughing, mm. you know that right. there's a community thing. Right. But when you have people sort of catching their breath at the same time and listening, I, I, that almost never happens. I, that's happened sometimes for me in like an Annie Baker play. You know, like there are moments or or. A, a really great play. I, that's never happened to me in a musical. No, the most powerful um, sound in a theater is silence. Uh, yeah, I agree. 
And that's what I realized when I saw that moment. I thought, we're, we're delivering something you don't get on Broadway, and we're doing it right. Um, so much of that's because of Cromer. Um, did did yeah. you guys make uh, adjustments when you moved to the the bigger house? Because I actually thought I actually liked the show better on Broadway, which is very rare for me. I tend to prefer. I'm gonna the I'm gonna make a suggestion as to why you liked it better on Broadway. Uh -huh. The house is a, one of the best sounding houses on Broadway. Oh, the the Ethel Barrymore. Great. The Ethel Barrymore. <laughs> I don't know how. Yeah, you had sound problems at the Atlantic. I remember. The Atlantic that. is like a box. You know, you can you can solve them, but we had, you know, our we we changed sound sound people. You know, for Broadway, but also the Atlantic is problematic. You have to really play it like a like a kind of like a boxy violin. You mm -hmm. know, like as mm -hmm. if you're the sound uh, designer, and we didn't solve all of those problems. It's you know, people obviously still loved it. You know, <laughs> but. The Barrymore is such a beautiful sounding house. Mm. Oh, now Tootsie's in the marquee, marquee, and there were all kinds of sound problems that we had to solve because that was built in, I guess, in the '80s, and it was built like a, like a sound, <laughs> sound absorption diffuser? machine. Mm -hmm. Like no, a diffuser oh. would have been nice. It just you can see there are rugs that go all the way up the wall. Oh, I see. And yeah. it sucks the sound got into it. it. So we it. had to like do all kinds of stuff hmm. to make it sound like a, a theater. Mm. Yeah, um, like the New York State Theater is designed not to project sound from the stage, deliberately because it was designed for dance. Right. right. So that's from the stage. the The marquee sounds great. Like if you if you're a mixer and mixing, you know, an orchestra and singers, the audience is going to hear a great show. They're going to hear every lyric. Right. But if you're an audience and you're laughing, and it's a comedy. Part of that communal experience is somehow hearing that there's laughter coming from all the way back right, and all the way forward, right. and that's sort of like, that's the question. Now, you know, again, not to shamelessly plug, but this show is so funny that it stopped mattering after, pretty much after we opened. Like mm -hmm. the laughter was so loud that it, you, you wouldn't be able to tell anyway. Right. But up until that point, I was getting really, really nervous, like about. The, the way that the laughter was just sucked into the walls. Mm. I'm also like a sound guy, so you know, it's like, I I, of course, say, I'm going to get That's one nervous. of my biggest pet peeves on Broadway musicals is how shitty the yeah. sound design can be. It is appalling so many times on musicals, like it, the level, the quality that people are just kind of. Mm. Used a lot of to. it comes down to the producer. I mean, mm. really, the buck always stops with the producer, but right. you can sometimes you can tell a producer who doesn't really understand sound mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or doesn't listen to their sound person or their sometimes their composer I, I haven't been in that situation but I, I, wonder I know if that's generational it's 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 technical and it's it's it often it reflects sort of an um uh, uh, it's true, producers who don't know what they're doing. When I saw Matilda at the uh, Opera House in the Kennedy Center, it was so ill-led, you couldn't understand about 80% of the lyrics, and as a result, they started this is not a joke. They started handing out lyric sheets to the audience as they came in. Oh, oh wow! Boy. To follow along because that was how bad it was. I, I've I mean, been to no, musicals that I thought needed to be supertitled. Well, I'm a lyricist, so you know, yeah. <laughs> I want you, know, you want them to read them. Yeah, yes, I'm saying that's I'm, fine. I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I was just wondering. He's if, not if, shocked. He's saying that's a great idea. No, well, I was thinking what maybe Tim said. You know, like heard it at in Washington and said, "No, you're going to have to pass out lyrics." I worked so hard on those lyrics. <laughs> I have know? another question for you. Yeah. Is it you know we hear your score once, 
It is so hard, and I have had this happen to me so many times, where I finally get a, a, a cast album and I listen to a cast album and suddenly I'm going, oh my God, all these gems. Or I mean, there's just such a depth of understanding, of a better understanding of what's going on. Is it? Does it seem fair to you that people in my field listen to you get one shot at listening to what you've done no. and try to like <laughs> coherently explain what the experience no, was like no it's one of the many unfair just exigencies of 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 live theater i mean it's just that's just how it is but you know every show i've done and actually every show that probably almost everybody's done except really simplistic musically stupid shows mm-hmm. or 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 simplistic and stupid in a great way that can mm-hmm. happen too right but you know but every show i've done has started with people some critics and and you know some of the little shits on the internet you know and um you know there's also good people on the internet but it's it's a, it's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a mixture i understood um, and some of and and even you know just people saying like you know, oh, it was a good story, but yeah, what? I didn't remember any of the well, songs. That's it. Oh, memorable. That's Mem- the word okay. that gets back. I want to make a confession here. <laughs> I want to make a confession specifically about the band's visit. When I first saw it, I thought it was a perfect show, and I, you know, I couldn't have been more enthusiastic about it. It was not until I saw it again that I realized that Answer Me is, as I feel it is oh, now, one of love the song. two or three best oh, theater yeah. songs of the post-Sondheim period. Wow. Oh, and I you. didn't register that at the Atlantic. My fault. Yeah, but you know what? It, you're forgiven because I, I, if I had been a, an audience member oh, there, I might not have registered it either. You need more than one listening. Da, yeah, there's da, so much. Da, and here da, we go. This is, your, da, da. This is my second listening. <laughs> No, people saw West Side Story and said, like, ugh, it's atonal. And you're like, West Side Story? You know, it's really puzzling. <laughs> Just keep singing, Peter, the whole rest of the, the interview. He's auditioning. Peter is singing to himself. Sorry. No, it, but it is, it's, it, it's frustrating. You know, we're, we're rushing to get four or five songs mixed bef- even before the cast album is out so we can send it to Tony voters mm-hmm. so they can understand you know, like that there's some good stuff in it. You know, I, you know, I've heard these songs 400 times each. I never have to hear them again, I'm but sorry. I'd like, I'd like people to hear them, yeah. you know, several times and maybe critics, maybe you guys well, should see a show twice. Well, why you know, not? Or why don't, why don't, why don't you make a reel? Why doesn't somebody spend a couple of hours at a piano Record several of the songs that we can you can you can have it like um, you know expire three days after the review. Send it so we get it linked and we can hear five songs. We, it, it's, it's tricky to do it just with the piano because yeah. or, so much or get so get so high so pay for the orchestra to do it. Like you know, oh, after, but there, 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 there's huge. I mean, it's there's union problems. Union All of a sudden, for, you're in for another four, forty fifty yeah, no, thousand. The I real say. solution, yeah. which is impossible, is for us to see a show twice. I'm sorry, that's impossible. That would be great. You know, to, to, there's just to, not time. Yeah. Although it's, I'm lucky because I, I, since I review regional theater, I often get to see shows in production, new productions. It's it's sometimes shows that I change my mind. But I want that I, issue of this this idiot issue of memorable. Like it's supposed to be a uh, an ear. What do you call those? Earworm. Yeah. Earworm. What you Earworm. Say? Earworm. Earworm. I think you said an earwormer. Uh-huh. I was going to go there. <laughs> An ear warmer. No, no, answer I, I, me is an ear warmer. warmer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know what? It's, yeah, yeah. It's it's it, it's just how it is. You yeah, know, like yeah. I, I all the all the the great albums that I listen to, the XTC albums or the Beatles or the Stones or any of that stuff, 
reward not just repeated listening, but you can listen to them for the rest of your life. Right, you that's know? right. And and how you feel about the relative merits of the song evolves over time. That, that's right. That's absolutely true. So, so David, earlier you mentioned like doing your own songs with, with with your band, and you perform very regularly. And I'm curious, like, do you keep that side separate from your musical theater work, or do they kind of make, do you do some of the musical theater? Songs I saw them do it at 54 Below. I saw him do, I mean, he did how, songs from Women on the Verge with your band. Yeah, I mean, it depends. It depends. You know, like, if I could, if I had the time and if I had the fan base as a, as a performer just to do originals, you know, and maybe every now and then throw in mm -hmm. a weird uh, arrangement of a show song, mm -hmm. I would do that. Because, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in improvisation and the people in my band are great musicians and great improvisers mm -hmm. and I get so much out of it but in order to fill you know clubs and you know venues uh, it's very right. helpful to have right. people who I love you know like Patty Lupone or or Laura or mm -hmm. you know uh, there's been a million of them come in and be a guest you know mm -hmm. and bring in some of the theater the weird thing happened to me when I did the full Monty I I'd had a fan base as a recording artist and I would play at a place like Joe's Pub and you know pretty much fill it, you know. Uh, um, I'm thinking now, I've got an idea. <laughs> Beautiful 2, the David Yazbek story. <laughs> yeah. Boy, that'll be a boring musical. <laughs> it's just going to be me know. taking baths, <laughs> you know, and, and biting my pencil and wondering what to do next. Um, okay. I want to ask. But can um, I finish this oh, question? Sorry. Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to say that. I was um, obnoxious. Oh, shoot. Where was I? I was saying. Oh, but so. So I was used to being a guy with a, a fan base that basically looked like, you know, like they might be Giants fan base. Like guys who looked like oh, me. I see. It's like oh. s sort of slightly overweight guys with glasses, um, you know, who were, you know, even though we weren't playing nerd rock, that's what that's what the base was. Or the XTC fans, oh, you yeah. know. Oh, and then God. all of a sudden the full Monty. And then all of a sudden I noticed that half the, the audiences grew by... 100% and half of them had their fingers in their ears because we were so loud um, so that was like this turning point oh. and my the drummer in my band Dean Sharonow who's also co-produces all all these albums including the cast albums he said you're gonna have to just you're gonna have to learn to love it and live with it and just introduce these two audiences to different you know different kinds of stuff so that's what I've been doing in talking about the music that has meant the most to you and that has influenced you um, theater music is not coming up very much. Well, you know, someone asked me, what what do you listen to to sort of get psyched to write theater music? And um, what came to mind first, there's a bunch of stuff, but the one song that never gets old for me is uh, Please Hello from uh, Pacific Overture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. I don't, and I don't... It's I not, a great song. Wow. I don't it's even know why. Song. It's just like, it's so, it's not just clever, but it's it's got so much going for it. And, you know, it like, that gets me psyched up. Um, uh, theater music is definitely up there, but it's very specific songs, really. Like Okay, I get, you know. here we go. <laughs> Sondheim wrote and published a list of songs he wished he'd written by other people. Yes, I Would saw. Would you care to share some of yours? Uh, <laughs> the first one is uh, "Waters of March" by Joe Beam. It's, oh God! Is like that's the perfect song. That is the perfect song. That is the top of my list. That's number one on my list. I get, I almost get teary-eyed saying the title. Yeah, me and, too. And and actually, the the version I like the best is what the one he does with uh, Ellis Regina, yeah. um, that duet. Yeah. 
Um, but that song is everything a song should be. It's images, it's my favorite kind of poetry. It's images, it's the music is, is the images of, of things floating down a river. I don't, it's a magical song and it's definitely at the top. Uh, I wish I had written, you know, <laughs> I, I, I wish I had written, uh, there's a lot of XTC songs. Andy Partridge is one of my favorite songwriters. Um, I've gotten to work with him. Uh, I've, there's so many of his songs. Um, Since is Working Overtime. Oh my just, God. Isn't that <laughs> a great song? Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, um, I wish I had written, uh, oh, uh, I wish I had written, um, Brown sugar, not the lyrics, oh. but that, but the, just oh, the, the groove, just the groove oh, and the sound. I mean, I, I was so excited when I heard that song when I was like eight years old that I I dragged my mother down to the uh, to the uh, you know like a soda fountain shop that I heard it on the jukebox and played it for her. That and then I played her theme from Shaft, which was the other song I wish I had written. But, but you know something? And here's one. I'll give you one more. Just theme, theme from Shaft is great. But the best orchestral uh, perpetration of funk as a movie theme oh, oh. is the theme... So Elizabeth is looking at me like, is it going to be the one I'm thinking of? It's the theme from Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. Oh, oh my God. God. What a great score. I was listening to that last wow. night. Wow. David Shire. I David don't know Sh that one. That is oh. such a okay. great score. It is score. just the... It's funky. You got. There's got to be two drummers Please, and like listener, two percussion. He's referring to the original one, right. not, not the, the new one. There is no remake. Not the Denzel Washington. No, no, the remake does not exist. No, I'm just the Walter Matthau. And I've met David Shire, who's who's written for theater also. You know, and he's sort of like I can tell like he he wanted to you know maybe talk about theater, and I'm just like. Oh my God! Theme from Taking a Pelham. Wow. You know what is that? What is that? Are you using bass trombones in that? Or is that? I mean, it is. And doesn't just... it have serial elements in it too? If I remember what, right. What? What? Ele serial elements in it? Like what do you mean? Like um, the, the, the the melodic material. Um, I'm not sure what the I, what the reference is. Yeah, a twelve tone elements. Oh, twelve tone. Dun, dun, dun. Oh yeah! Oh, not the, oh not no, no. Riff, but oh the, no, no! Yeah, it yeah. definitely. Ha oh, you like serial music? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it completely has that. Yeah. Uh, it, the melody is like. It's such a badass main it's, title. It's, it is great, and I, you know, someday I'd like to conduct an orchestra and just do that song. Yeah. And maybe theme from Shaft, also. I brought oh, it around. Wow. <laughs> that would <Okay>. be fun. <laughs> Your symphony we're orchestra there. appearances are going to be so very interesting. Putting on a call to Lincoln Center. <laughs> no. And two Zappa songs. Yeah. Two Zappa songs. Yeah. Which one? Well, let's move to Cleveland. Um, maybe. Maybe. Uh, I'm not sure what the other one would be. Peaches and Regalia. Maybe Peaches and Regalia. But you yeah. know what? There is a guy who does big band versions of Zappa songs. Yes, that's and, right. And they're great. And he's having permissions problems. Yes, it's, his name's Frank, um, I can't remember his last name, but his big band. We wrapping it up? We are. It okay. looks we are. like. We have to. Feels like five time. minutes has gone by. I, I know. It's so nice of you And to we say. could have talked on and on, but it is really, truly been a pleasure to have you in the it's studio. It's been a pleasure today. for me. This was really fun. Thank you so much for coming. It was worth coming down from Rockland County. Oh my God, <laughs> oh my we're honored. Oh my God. Yeah. We're honored. Yeah. Thanks again, David. And thank you guys. Whatever's oh next, God. good luck with it. Thank you, Princess Bride. That's what's next. Oh my God. Wait, Go get him, Tiger. Yeah. Break oh the God. curse. And <laughs> <laughs> Wh Whose um, fans are not 
possessive at all. Oh, no. Uh, we're having no. fun. They're going to love it. We're having fun with it. It's good. Good. Thank you very, very much, David. As we anticipated, this was a conversation that could have gone on and on. But time now for a word from our sponsor. What makes the perfect performance venue? Comfortable seats, great views of the stage, a line for the toilet that doesn't take you out to the sidewalk? In truth, every venue is unique, from a college studio space to a Broadway house, from a presentation space to an arena. Undertaking their design or renovation can be a challenge, but at Charcoal Blue, that's all they do. Charcoal Blue are the leading theater, acoustic, and digital design consultancy that have designed, renovated, tweaked, and polished more than 200 performance and presentation spaces, both here and abroad over the past 15 years. From a six-person mobile podcasting studio to the new Performing Arts Center at the World Trade Center, their team of experienced musical and theater professionals innovate at any scale and any budget. With studios in New York, Chicago, the UK, and Australia, speak to them today about how they can help you realize your ambitions for your space. Visit them at charcoalblue.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at charcoalblue. Welcome back to Three on the Isle. Next up, our personal picks and pans, productions we've seen of late that set our hearts aflutter or sinking. Elizabeth, start us off, please. Uh, well, I, I caught a, an interesting but a kind of actually very disappointing show uh, at Tenen's Warehouse, where actually uh, the Oklahoma revival originated. Uh, and this one is called Grief. Grief is the thing with feathers, which is a you know play on a uh, line by uh, Emily Dickinson, which is hope, but here it's grief. And it's adapted by Ender Walsh uh, from a Max Porter novel, and it stars uh, Killian Murphy, who's absolutely wondrous. But and you know I'm very partial to kind of showy directions, <laughs> direction <laughs> staging. Oh, rather. you Europeans. I know, I, I'm partial to that, but I have to say this one went, was just ridiculous. Uh, there's so much multimedia razzmatazz in there that it creates this distance between the audience and the very emotional content. Uh, and it's it's way too flashy for its own good. Uh, even though Killian Murphy is absolutely amazing in it, he plays a, a, a widower who's dealing with losing his wife. Um, and it's only in the very end that when they finally drop, like the projections are great, the sound design is fantastic, it's completely overwhelming and very distracting. Um, and it's only in the very end when they drop all that stuff that the show really finds its footing. And it's, it's, it's just too late. So I was pretty uh, disappointed uh, in this one. And I, I think I think it got mostly good reviews, but for me it didn't work, it was just too much. And I really, I never say that. For me, too much is never enough. <laughs> but <laughs> this one, it's just, you know, it shows that, again, it's a good director knows when to stop. Hmm. Ned Roram used to say, a little bit too much is just enough for me. <laughs> That's good. Yes. Uh, Terry, what's, what's yours? Well, I've been following the Irish Repertory Theater here in New York doing their Sean O'Casey season. Uh, they've done readings of, of 17 of O'Casey's plays and fully staged productions in rotating repertory of the three plays in what he called his Dublin trilogy. Uh, three plays set in the early years of the 20th century in which domestic life in Dublin is, is seen against the backdrop of political violence. First The Shadow of a Gunman, then Juno and the Paycock, and now the last panel in the triptych the Plow and the Stars, directed by Charlotte Moore, the company's artistic director. If you had to pick just one, the whole thing is extraordinary, but this would be the one to see. 
The Plow and the Stars is a very ambitious show to get into that small theater, I think 184 seats or 148 seats. It's small. It requires four sets, one of them an exterior, and a cast uh, maximally of 16. The Irish Rep works wonders, but they really worked a wonder with this. They got the whole show, the whole cast, onto that set without breaking anything in a production of, of a highly naturalistic production, even more surprising to bring that off with that kind of space. It is a difficult play. It is an immensely moving play. It's a, it's a play about the futility of war and the tendency to glamorize it, uh, which was, of course, very much something that went on during the Troubles in Ireland. And I've never seen a better Sean O'Casey production. I, I left the theater with my mouth hanging open. I was so powerfully moved by the acting, by the staging, by Charlie Corcoran's design, which is itself a character. Uh, I myself feel that this OKC season is the most important thing that's been happening in New York theater this year, just as I think the Irish Rep may be the best off-Broadway company we have. And if you've never seen them, and if, God help you, you've never seen a play by Sean O'Casey, You've got to go to this. All three of the plays in the trilogy are being done over single weekends. Um, it is not to be missed. And Peter? Well, I'm going to speak just very briefly about something I saw in Washington uh, recently, a wonderful uh, production of J.T. Rogers' Oslo, which I enjoyed greatly in New York. It was, uh, I'd say, it was a Tony-winning play, but it had its adherents and its detractors. Some people felt it was overwritten or a little too uh, wonky. I thought it was terrifically done at Roundhouse Theater in Washington by a terrific cast directed by Ryan Roulette, and uh, Washington just seems to me the perfect place right now to see uh, no a, a kidding. About, uh, uh, which really deals with um, both the exhilaration and the despair of a, of a peace process uh, that was successful in the short term, but in the long term was, didn't bear um, enduring fruit. So there you have it. Uh, this is uh, a wrap for episode 32. Very uh, chatty one. A very a chatty great, one. Great guest. A great guest. <laughs> a thanks to David Yazbek for being such a great uh, informative guest. And being so forthcoming. And being so forthcoming indeed. I'm Peter Marks. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. And I'm Terry Teachout. Our producer is the refulgent Kirby. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa, I do not no, understand. Not gonna... I do not oh understand. Oh my God. That word. Yeah, vault. That's amazing. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at 3 on the also on our Facebook page and write to us at 3 on the aisle at gmail.com spell it out please and uh, please let us know if there are any topics you'd be uh, interested in uh, hearing us uh, pontificate about because we're I mean, we, we need very little very little prompting to just one little off. push and we're headed down the mountain exactly, <laughs> exactly right Exactly. the tiniest little push is enough so thanks for listening we'll be with you again soon on the aisle